at the time, I wasn't thinking anything other than addressing the work. But I did hear Spike say, leave him alone. He's in the zone. I heard him say that. You know, again, deeply affirming. I had this sense that whatever it was that I was doing was right and was serving the story in the way that he needed the story to be served. Hello and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm David Canfield, EW's Movies Editor, joined as always by my co-host Clarissa Cruz, EW's Executive Editor. Hi, Clarissa. Hi, David. Today we are going all in on the SAG Awards uh, with discussion of why they matter, who we think will win in each category, and what that means for the Oscar race. Uh, If you don't pay that much attention to SAG, you should probably start if you care about Mm -hmm. uh, what's going to happen at the Oscars. Uh, Later we're going to be joined by one of this year's ensemble nominees, Delroy Lindo of The Five Bloods, who who tragically did not make the Oscar cut, um, but, but, but definitely deserved to. Um, and, and accordingly, we're going to talk a little bit um, at the end of this about some other people we wish got more of a run this year um, with the Academy. Um, well, let's, Clarissa, start talking about yes, yes. Uh, about SAG. Um, I mean, I feel like I got like a crash course in what SAG means for the Oscars because I just edited all your stories in our in our mini mag, the awardist mini mag. I'm giving a little plug. To our other on Apple News. <laughs> available <laughs> on Apple News. And David goes deep into why the SAG Awards matter. Um, I mean, I think the the just just to distill and very and simplify the argument a little bit, like it's because actors make up SAG and actors are the are the largest branch uh, voting at the Academy. I mean, can can you expand on that a little bit, David? Sure. Um, I mean, it is exactly what you said. The SAG Awards are voted on by the largest union in Hollywood and they make up, I mean, not all of SAG, but they make up a good chunk of the Academy. They are the largest branch in the Academy as well. So we tend to see a lot of overlap, particularly in their acting winners, but also in in other kinds of things as well, um, in terms of who wins and who gets to go far and things like that. Um, in, In the piece that you mentioned, Clarissa, we sort of run through various moments that SAG really impacted the Oscar race, mm-hmm. uh, the first time, I think it was the fourth SAG Awards, or maybe the third, uh, when they predicted all four a- uh, acting Oscar winners, which kind of right. gave people a sense of, okay, this is probably a, a group to watch if we are interested in thinking about who's going to win Oscars. That was the year of As Good yeah. As It Gets when Helen Hunt and Jack Nicholson won. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, that, that was a fascinating story because it really um, showed the years where it was where the SAG awards were pivotal in sort of turning the tide with the with the mm-hmm. Oscar race and sort of hinting at some upsets to come. Um, the one that I was I was uh, <laughs> I was surprised by was Shakespeare in Love. Um, not because I mean that was an upset, but also the photo that we used had Ben Affleck in it, and I totally <laughs> forgot. I totally forgot that he was in that movie. SAG um, ensemble winner. SAG ensemble <laughs> winner. But that that sort of I think it was was it Saving Private Ryan that was the big. Um, Front runner that year, and mm-hmm. um, and then at the end, um, Shakespeare in Love um, was a bit was a big upset. Um, yeah, and then there there were sort there were other races that seemed too close to call, but the SAG, uh, the SAG kind of gave that early tip. They did. Um, the most recent one that that I would point to is it's an interesting example because it was a case of of the Oscar winner not winning. It was mm-hmm. when. Um, 
Emily Blunt yes. won Best Supporting Actress a couple of years ago for A Quiet Place. Now, Emily Blunt was not nominated for the Oscar. Um, but I mean, the eventual... That, uh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. I mean, that rarely happens, right? The, that, that, very, yeah. that, that almost never happens. And conversely, mm-hmm. even rarer is uh, the eventual Oscar winner, Regina King, that year was not nominated for SAG. So effectively, Regina King had won the Golden Globe, which was a really big, important moment. Uh, you know, this nationally televised, you know, coronation uh, for her to win that Oscar. Um, but when Emily Blunt then won the SAG Award, beating all of Regina King's Oscar competition, <laughs> it indicated mm-hmm. that there really wasn't, even though she didn't get in at SAG for whatever reason, there wasn't a challenger that, that right. could emerge. Um, and Emily this year cleared again, the lanes. Emily cleared the lanes. <laughs> uh, and this year again, it, it's looking like Best Supporting Actor, all eyes are on Best Supporting Actress. I feel like we talk mm-hmm. about that every week, <laughs> but we truly have no idea what is going to happen there. Um, yeah. So should we start there, I guess, with yeah, yeah. Yes, totally, totally. Um, I'll run through them for just to refresh everybody. Um, but outstanding performance by a female actor in a supporting role, uh, Maria Bakalova in Borat, subsequent movie film, Glenn Close, <laughs> Hill, Hill Billy Elegy. Um, Olivia Coleman, The Father, Yajun Yoon, Minari, and Helena Zengel, News of the World. So what's going mm. on here? Who knows? Uh, the, the, at this <laughs> point, it's it's considered to be between, I think, three actresses. All of them are also nominated for the Oscar. That's Maria Bakalova, Yujin Yoon, and um, Glenn Close. SAG mm-hmm. also nominated Amy Adams for Hillbilly Elegy and Best Actress. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is a movie that they disproportionately liked, which should help Glenn Close's standing here. It's also mm-hmm. the kind of case where if she does win here, you know, Oscar voting hasn't started yet. If, if someone can plant that flag for her, uh, that overdue mm-hmm. narrative is so strong, it could be enough because the field is so erratic. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. But we're thinking that it, it could be a good moment for Maria Bakalova. Uh, yeah. Borat, Borat has done really well with guilds. It also won the Writers Guild Award for Best Adapted Screenplay and a big surprise. It was mm-hmm. nominated for PGA for Best um, Best Picture. So it has a lot of industry support beyond her, which is really critical. Um, that was, as we've talked about, why someone like Jennifer Lopez, another sort of standout unconventionally in, in a movie, was faded away because Hustlers didn't have any support beyond her. Right, um, right. So the fact that she was nominated by SAG and the fact that it has done so well within the industry at large indicates that this could be a huge moment for her. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the spoiler is probably Eugene Yoon for Minari. That's a movie yeah. that SAG really loved. Mm-hmm. Um, and we can talk about that more in a minute. Um, yeah. I mean, but... the Oscars really loved uh, for, for mm-hmm. nomination wise. I mean, that that movie, um, I mean, would it be safe to say it overperformed um, in in the nominations? Because it, it it really did get a lot, a lot of love. It got a lot. Um, I think Stephen Yun was probably actually a little bit safer in Best Actor than we thought, given how mm-hmm. well the movie had been received. Um, and the movie's. The movie really overperformed at SAG more so, um, mm-hmm. which may indicate a level of passion you don't see in those Oscar nominations. Um, right. But Best Supporting Actress is one category that's primed to, I think, shape the race and where voters are thinking. The one major Oscar contender who's not nominated here is Amanda Seyfried. And mm-hmm. that's, I don't think that's a Regina King situation because, first of all, she didn't win the Golden Globe. And second right. of all, it, I don't think she has that sort of narrative that King had, um, 
you know, being this longtime Hollywood vet, uh, really in her first, I think it was her first film role at that point in the decade, she mm-hmm. doesn't quite have that. So it's going to be a, more of an uphill climb for her. Um, as far as the other categories, I mean, I, I'm just, just eyeballing it now. It seems like there's, there's a lot of overlap here. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. does that, does that sort of indicate, uh, these sort of locked kind of front runners that we've been talking about this season? Yeah. So I think in best actor, uh, you're going to see Chadwick Boseman win for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom and in best mm-hmm. supporting actor, Daniel Kaluuya feels comfortably ahead for Judas and the Black Messiah. These guys mm-hmm. have, of course, won everything notable so far. So the expectation is they win here and therefore are extremely well positioned and pretty much considered locks to win the Oscar. If either of them lose here, say if the Minari love is really strong and Stephen Young wins for Chad- over Chadwick, which I think is unlikely, or um, Sasha Baron Cohen maybe rides a good night for the trial of the Chicago 7, they'll have challengers going into Oscar night. Uh, but at this point, I'm, I'm pretty reluctant uh, to see that happening. Right. Best actress right. is the one. Uh, the other <laughs> one, though. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, uh, Andre Day is, is not here. Um, I, it looks like um, uh, Amy Adams took her spot. I mean, is that does that indicate anything? I mean, other than this sort of outsized love for Hillbilly Elegy in, in the SAG nominations? I, I don't think it does. I think that in the case of, of Andrew Day, she actually really only missed because Billie Holiday was such a late-breaking film. When mm-hmm. SAG tends to not nominate people, that's usually the reason. Uh, so I really don't think it, it says a ton um, about, about her chances for the Oscar, and she is coming off of the Golden Globe win, which was a huge upset, so she's absolutely in the race. Um, but I think whoever wins here is going to be going, going to be considered the front runner. And at this right. point, it feels like it's Carrie Mulligan's year, mm-hmm. uh, especially because Oscar went so wild for Promising Young Woman and it just won Best Original Screenplay with WGA. You notice how we keep connecting guilds. Yes. <laughs> but it, do, it does, you know, those patterns do emerge where we see mm-hmm. a movie win somewhere and then it wins somewhere else. And that eventually indicates a good Oscar night. I think that's right. a really good example uh, Emerald Fennel winning Best Original Screenplay with WGA, um, pushing Carrie Mulligan's chances forward with SAG. Even though they're not the same group, it, this this industry tends to be one of groupthink a little bit. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, speaking of groups, um, I'm, uh, let's talk a little bit about the ensemble category, which which often, as you pointed out in your mini mag story, um, foretells the Best Picture winner. Um, but in this case, there's there's a little uh, there's a there's a little bit of a Ain't question because happen. of yeah because of because no man land is not really it's kind of a one woman show and um and i don't yeah. think the overlap is going to be uh happening this year or as you said ain't gonna happen ain't gonna happen <laughs> and to clarify no man land is not nominated here not right that it, it, it should be um minari is nominated here that feels notable because it's you know it is a cast movie but it, it's it's not like a trial chicago seven or a One Night in Miami, which is also nominated here, or a Ma Rainey's mm-hmm. Black Bottom. You know, it is a movie where if you nominate it for the Best Ensemble Prize, it is an actor's vote for Best Picture in a way. It's really mm-hmm. an endorsement of the movie. Um, right. Yeah, so I think that in that in that case, the last nominee being Five Bloods, you actually have a majority of nominees who are not nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars, which is very mm-hmm. un- unusual. Uh, I-, I think it's between the two... Oscar Best Picture nominees. I think it's between Trial of the Chicago 7 um, and Minari. At this mm-hmm. point, I, I feel 
inclined to predict Minari. Um, mm-hmm. Trash Chicago 7 couldn't even win the Writers Guild. Uh, <laughs> it, it has been losing quite a bit of steam. It could definitely still win here. Uh, Netflix audience really helps it, especially because mm-hmm. SAG is such a huge group that they tend to skew a little bit more populist. Mm-hmm. They've you know gone for movies like Black Panther in this category before or Hidden Figures, you know, more commercial titles. Um, right. So that definitely helps trial. But I think Minari may be the parasite of the bunch. Yeah, uh, it seems to be the passion year. pick um, mm-hmm, exactly. this this year. Um, and, and yeah, the parasite of the bunch, as you said. Um, so what I guess because we're probably not going to have as much time to, to talk about this anymore, but can we sort of RIP the, the people that we thought or wished did better in this um, in this race or, or just last, lasted longer? Um, I mean, are there any favorites that that uh, I mean, you know, precursors and everything like that, all that aside, um, who who are you disappointed that they didn't go further in this race? Um, well, Delroy Lindo, for one, who mm-hmm. you spoke with uh, for yeah. this episode and who is so phenomenal yeah. in Five Bloods. It's just mm-hmm. just horrible. We've been we've been talking about him from the beginning. And, yeah. <laughs> yes, we have. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and a lot of people have. I think that it, it, it was so strange that he just could not gain track. You know, he wasn't nominated for Best Actor at SAG either. This wasn't mm-hmm. a surprise that he wasn't nominated for the Oscars, given how the precursors had gone. But it just it never clicked. And it, I never understood why. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he had the Oscar clip. If anyone had one, he had the Oscar clip. <laughs> I mean, what uh, more do you monologue. need to do? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I, I, this was the year that female filmmakers broke through in the Oscar race in a way that we've never seen before. But but even so, two of my very favorite films of the year were First Cow and Never Rarely, Sometimes mm. Always. Uh, oh, so yeah. I was, I was really disappointed that Kelly Reichardt and, and Eliza Hittman couldn't even get screenplay nominations yeah, yeah, um, that's so disappointing. I really, I really loved Never Rarely, Sometimes Always. Yeah, I feel well, like that was one of, of the last things we saw before, uh, before, uh, before we all locked down. But yeah, yes, we saw it, and I remember we saw it in a screening room, and we were all mm-hmm. very quiet. And then the world <laughs> shut down like a week later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But that was that was so good. Um, I, I, I will always, um, make a case for Aubrey Plaza. Um, oh, yes. For 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 Black Bear, which um which I just thought she was so amazing. And so, I mean, she's, she's definitely one of those actresses that you think um, are a bit typecast, um, mm-hmm. you know, just sort of always playing that kind of deadpan role. And I mean, she just, I, I just thought she was fantastic um, and, and okay. stretched so far. And, and I mean, just like a, a cool movie, a showcase for her. And, um, and I was, you know, we were trying to manifest it, David. We were trying to make it happen. With we were. We um, really were. Oh, oh, let them all talk. Can we talk about that? Oh, my God. <laughs> we can. We, we can, can talk all day about that. I think that, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't want to speak for you, David, but I feel like this was just one of my favorite movies of the year, but kind of went quiet come awards time. Yeah, I think, it, I mean, it got very, it was very well reviewed. Um, mm-hmm. I think people really enjoyed it. I just don't think it was ever taken that seriously as an awards movie, which, yeah. fair enough, I guess. But I thought at least Candace Bergen, um, oh, who, Candace. Who, you, who you also spoke with, um, mm-hmm. deserved a little bit more of a run. She was so great. Uh, and that movie was just such a bomb. I could have yes. watched that. I could have watched three hours of that. Um, yeah, I think David and I both wanted to go on this cruise with with them and, uh, and just yes. hang out with them. And I had <laughs> vowed to never go on a cruise again. Um, so <laughs> it broke my rule. 
Oh, gosh, who else? Bill Murray. That's another one. Oh, um, that's a Bill big one, Murray, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I think you're Bill getting Murray some was insight. so good yeah. in that. Bill Murray was so, so good, good in that movie. On the rocks. Um, that was the one that I really thought he would go far, um, just because he's Bill Murray in it. It was such a, it was a role about his career in so many ways, and he got mm-hmm. to be he got to show more range than usual. Uh, and of course, he'd been nominated for his last Sofia Coppola uh, lead role, so that was a that was a bummer. Um, yeah, we could go on and on. Uh, but we we're going to take a quick break, uh, and when we come back, Clarissa will be speaking with one such unjustly not nominated, but still so fantastic actor, Delroy Lindo. Here is my interview with Delroy Lindo, star of The Five Bloods. Enjoy. Welcome, Delroy, and thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks. Lots of people saw this film, but for those who haven't, can you tell me a little bit of of what it's about? The film, the narrative involves these four men returning to Vietnam to find the remains of their fallen comrade. And there is a secondary objective that they have, which I am not going to tell you because I want you to see the film. This is your fourth collaboration with Spike Lee. Your relationship with him uh, spans over three decades. Tell me how he approached you for this one, since it's been a little while since Clockers. So, um... Um, The short version was that he called me uh, and said he had this script that he wanted to send me and that I should read it and then let him know what I thought. He sent it to me. I read it. I called him back, let him know what I thought, which was, of course, I wanted to do it, but it's been very well documented at this point. Um, numerous times that I had one little problem and uh, we discussed that. It was not a lot of discussion. It had to do with, I did not want to be a Trump supporter. Uh, We talked about that briefly. Um, A few days later, Spike called me back and said he really needed Paul to be a Trump supporter. I read the script uh, two additional times and was able to come to terms emotionally and psychologically with how my character could end up being not only a Trump supporter, but a a MAGA hat-wearing Trump supporter. Once I had come to terms with that, um, I called Spike and said, I'm in. That's the short version. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what got you to come to terms with that? Because I can imagine that that must have been difficult. Yeah. Difficult in as much as, from a political standpoint, it was complete anathema to everything that I stand for. Uh, And also, I remember speaking to Spike, and one of the first things I said was, I have, a at that time, a 17-year-old son. I don't want to have to um, validate this to my son. How do I, you know, how do I talk, about my, talk to my son about doing this? But to your question, how did I get my head around it? How did I come to terms with it? I came to terms with it after having read it the third time. I devised for myself a logic having to do with the amount of loss that Paul has suffered and the extent to which Paul feels profoundly betrayed and abandoned. Given that I I volunteered, Paul volunteered, was was not drafted to go to Vietnam. I volunteered three tours and there's a depth of betrayal and abandonment. I've also experienced loss not only the loss of my wife in childbirth, the loss of my son having to do with the fact that we are 
deeply at odds with each other. So there is loss, betrayal, and abandonment. Therefore, I recognize that when this individual came along in 2015, talking about the fact that he was going to make things right for all people who had felt disenfranchised, disconnected. I believe that. I needed to believe that because I needed a win in my life. And so that was the logic that I created for myself that resulted in my casting that vote in 2016. You know, one of the things that, that struck me about the film is, you know, it deals in history in different ways. Um, obviously, you know, the Vietnam War, but also the American Civil Rights Movement. What struck me is watching this. I mean, I saw it, it must have been around June, must have been May, around May or June. And it was, you know, in the wake of the George Floyd protests. And what struck me is that there was some cuts in the movie that resonated in a different way because of what was happening in America at the time. I mean, how do you feel about this movie that thoroughly explores history, but is also very contemporary? I feel that it is a tremendous affirmation for the work with Spike, that the film lands right in the middle of the zeitgeist. That's the term that I've continually used. It landed right in the middle of the zeitgeist. And that speaks to Spike Lee's vision as a creative worker. Obviously, there was no way we could have anticipated the events of, of this past year. However, it does speak to the fact that Spike Lee, as a, as a filmmaker, elects not only to present certain stories to his audiences, but elects to present those stories in a certain style, in a certain way. And in this instance with The Five Bloods, it, was, it turned out to be you know, profoundly and tragically fortuitous that it landed when it landed. So broadly, it was and is a huge affirmation for this work and for Spike as a filmmaker. Absolutely. Uh, tell me how your relationship with Spike has evolved since you first started working with him. I mean, it, like I said, there's three decades worth here. I mean, do you have a shorthand by now? Like, do you, is there a way that you communicate that, that? Yeah, I'd like to believe that there is a shorthand. It, it's interestingly, it's not something that we've ever discussed, but I, I'd like to believe that there is a shorthand. And, and the basis for the shorthand is that um, he trusts me. It's a hell of a thing. It's an extraordinary thing for any actor to say of any director, of any co-worker, he trusts me, he or she trusts me. Therefore, there is a, a security blanket, a foundation of affirmation, to use that word again. And it started on Malcolm X, frankly. And that trust has... I won't even say it's grown. I, I guess it's grown because it was kind of sort of always there. But I, I would say to you, how has the relationship changed? You know, when Spike called me about this, he said some things to me on the telephone conversation that felt to me very um, unspike-like based on um, my recollection of him. They were just real affirming. They were very, very um, warm. And I'm not saying that, He's not a warm person. <clears throat> I'm just saying in terms of how he was communicating with me. I remember coming home. I was in the car. I was in my car and I pulled over and we were talking on the phone. 
And when I got home, I told my lady what he had said. And it was just very warm, very supportive. Um, so that is an element that has grown over the years. And you know, you know, all of the various interviews that I have done in support of this film, and cumulatively, I'm almost getting to a point where I'm thinking, I don't want to say too good to be true, but it feels profoundly affirming, not only in terms of Spike and my working relationship with him, but more broadly in terms of the response to the film, the response to Spike, the response to all of us which has been so positive, deeply positive and affirming. I hope that that becomes a point of departure for whatever future work we do together. That's so nice. That must be a great feeling. It is a great feeling. Uh, it yeah. absolutely is. This role for you, I mean, your performance was just astounding. I, th I thought it was incredible. Tell me what sort of research you did and I know you. I know you, I. I read that you had a couple of cousins who served in Vietnam, and and you yeah. and you, you did that. But um, can you tell me a little bit about what the process was like? My cousins, my two cousins, were the first vets that I spoke with, and because we are family, um, everybody that I spoke with was, was incredibly generous uh, with their time. But my cousins, they came to my. I was working on the East Coast. They came up to my house. And they just sat with me and we talked as family, essentially. But the fact that they're both Vietnam vets, interestingly, they both had very, very different experiences in Vietnam. Uh, my one cousin was uh, 18 years old. My son is 19. My cousin was 18 when he was drafted. And inside of the first week, he was in country fighting. Right. So they both talked about their experiences, shared their experiences with me. I'm taking notes furiously as they're sitting in my living room talking to me. I'm watching their body language. I'm watching how their body language changes as they speak about certain events in uh, Vietnam that happened to them. And I'm recording. So I'm getting this full court press of an experience. That was the foundation. The one cousin gave me, at the end of our time together, he gave me a box full of photographs. He said, hey man, take this, if it's useful, you know, give it back to me when you're done, but take a look at these, see if anything's useful. And um, that kind of generosity, that kind of trust, and yes, we're family, they're my cousins, but, um, it just was giving me an immense, a gargantuan jumping off point to begin this work. You know, I took the box. He also gave me, uh, in addition to these photographs, he gave me, um, they weren't commendations. They were like, I don't know, plaques from his battalion. So I had all of this stuff to begin my work, my research. I then sought out a number of other vets all of whom spoke with me on the phone. They all spoke about different aspects of their experiences. And then I was also introduced finally to a major uh, a vet of the Iraq war. She was a major. She met with me also and just talked to me. And all of these vets were gifting me 
this extraordinary information. It's really interesting because um, most vets, they don't talk about their experiences with, with civilians. They don't, they don't share, they don't talk. So the fact that all of this information was being shared with me, I did not take lightly and I did not take for granted. So in addition to speaking with these various vets, I looked at documentary film, I looked at Ken Burns' film, I looked at um, something called The Anderson Platoon, which featured a colonel, I believe. He was the only African-American leader of a platoon in Vietnam. And I also read a number of books. And when I got to Thailand, uh, Spike brought in a couple of vets to speak with us. So I had this, you know, kind of kaleidoscopic, this range of um, data that I exposed myself to. In addition to talking to the vets, I looked at film and I read books. So I had all of that and, and all of that, all of those things formed a really solid foundation for me as I was entering into this work. I have to say that I was working on a television series in New York at the time. And I have to say that the producers of the film, Robert and Michelle King and Brooke Kennedy, they bent over backwards to rearrange the schedule on the television series in such a way that I could get out. Was that for The Good Fight? Good yeah. Fight, I was working on The Good Fight. And they turned themselves into pretzels. Uh, the schedule, my fellow actors on, my castmates on The Good Fight, all in order that I could wrap in time to get on a plane and go to Thailand to begin my work. So I have to give it up to them. I have to um, acknowledge that. One last <laughs> shout out to my dentist. Your dentist. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm going on and on. My dentist. My dentist. Why? What about your dentist? What about my dentist? One of the books that I read was a book called Bloods by a man named Wallace oh. Terry. Are you familiar with Bloods? Yeah. Yeah. These verbatim accounts of um, African-American Vietnam vets. I'd read it back when it first came out and I reread it preparing to do the film. And one of the photographs in Bloods was of one of the vets and his teeth were crooked. And I looked at the photograph and I said, I want teeth kind of sort of like that. So I went to my dentist and I spoke with the props person on the film and my dentist made a cast of my teeth and the props person made a cast of my teeth that kind of sort of resembled the kind of crookedness that I wanted. Now, I'm mentioning that to you because there were all these small little elements that contributed to the work. And I made it really clear to my dentist. I said, you probably, nobody will take, take any notice of this. You probably cannot see this in the film, but it's for me. Right. And all of those contributions assisted, helped me as I was building, creating Paul. The scene where it's a monologue and you're looking down at the camera. I mean, I just got chills. I saw that and I was like, this is, this is Shakespearean. Tell me what it was like shooting that and, um, and what sort of direction you got from Spike or you know, what were you pulling from there? Didn't get any direction from Spike. Um, and that goes back to the trust. Uh, I take that back. One thing he said to me on the very first take you know, where I come through the underbrush, I come through 
And uh, I started talking. And the very first take, I came through and I stopped and I looked around. And then I started to walk and talk. And he said, no, 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 I need you. When you come through, don't stop. Keep walking. That was the only direction he gave me. And I remember when Spike had said to me during rehearsal or whenever it was, he said, you'll be talking directly to the camera. And I thought, fine, that's okay. It's been so interesting to receive the responses that people have to that monologue. I just took it on as yet another responsibility that I had to contribute to the film. I did not know, I had no clue that it would have that kind of impact, that it would have the kind of impact that it has had. I prepared slightly differently for that particular monologue because there were so many words that I had to, I had to learn the words. And ordinarily, I wouldn't work like that. I would try to have the language sit into me more organically. But because it was such a, a lot of language, I had to learn it. And so in the weeks leading up to shooting the scene, whenever I had a break, I would go off and I would look at those words, committing them to memory. The morning that we shot the scene, I want to believe, and it was probably six or seven weeks into our time in Thailand, and I'd like to believe that I was sufficiently in tune with Paul at that point in the proceedings, sufficiently conversant with myself, with Paul, so that I had made certain decisions about why I was saying what I was saying, and I just proceeded to mine those things in the various takes that we did of the monologue. And a clue that I had, and I, and I want to say to you, I didn't, at the time, I wasn't thinking anything other than addressing the work. But I did hear Spike say, leave him alone, he's in the zone. I heard him say that, you know, again, deeply affirming. I had this sense that whatever it was that I was doing was right and was serving the story in the way that he needed the story to be served. And the other component is that the monologue was written, but I added a few things. And Spike did not say to me, don't do that. He allowed those things in and they found their way into the cut of the film. And so there were these affirmations of what I was doing. And of course, when you have those affirmations, it just gives more confidence that one is serving the story in the way it needs to be served. One is liberated to just keep exploring in the way that one has been doing. So the only direction he gave me was, don't stop when you come through, keep walking. Um, last question, speaking of affirmations, I mean, I knew the moment I finished this movie that you were going to be a contender in this award season and that monologue and just the performance as a whole. How does it feel at this point in your career to get this kind of recognition? It's interesting because on some level, I feel this is why I went to acting school over 40 years ago. To give you a completely mundane answer, it feels good. <laughs> <laughs> but various people have said, you know, and you said it, at this point in your career, I could be horribly wrong, knock on wood, 
but my career is not finished, knock on wood. And so while I'm at a certain point in my career, I want to believe that I still have much more to offer and I want to keep working. And this is a beautiful, a sublime milestone in my career, certainly. I acknowledge it. Absolutely, I'm appreciating and enjoying it for the milestone that it is. But I'm also looking forward to continue to work. I'm not naive enough to think that experiences like this come along every day. They do not. However, to the extent that everything I've learned and experienced as an actor, I poured into this work, Paul. I want to believe that there is more where that came from that I will then continue to pour into, contribute to whatever future work I do. If I ever get hired again. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. It was such a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks for joining us today, Delroy. God bless. All the best. Take care, sir. Well, that's all from us today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Awardist. Please subscribe and listen along every week wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us, tell us what you think, share it with your friends. You can also head to ew.com slash awardist for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race. And follow me on Twitter at ClarissaNYC1 and David at DavidCanfield97. Next week, we'll be joined by Best Actress nominee Vanessa Kirby and break down who's up and who's down after SAGs. See you next week. <laughs>